Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Who are you? April, the girl put down her phone and stood up. She was middle height and slim, with cropped honey blonde hair that hugged the shape of her skull and finely arched eyebrows that gave her a look somewhere between amusement and disdain. There was something otherworldly about her, some indefinable quality Hannah could not put her finger on. She felt almost as if she had seen her somewhere before or watched her in a film. She had the kind of beauty that hurt your eyes if you looked at her for too long, but made it hard to tear your gaze away. It was, Hannah realised, as if a different kind of light was shining on her than on the rest of the room. April Clark Cliveden, the girl added helpfully, when Hannah did not immediately reply, as if that name should mean something. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Ruth Ware is an international number one bestseller of psychological thrillers. Her books include A Dark Dark Wood, The Woman in Cabin 10 and One by One. Today, I'm talking to Ruth Ware about her latest book, The It Girl. Ruth Ware, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. The It Girl is a book of contrasts, contrasts in time, in place, and even in class to a certain degree. But let's start with The It Girl. There's something in the psychology of The It Girl. She's both admired and hated. What does it take to be The It Girl at Oxford to be April Clark Cliveden? Oh, what a good question. Um, Well, it's probably important to start by saying that April, the it girl of the title, uh, is not the narrator of the book. Uh, The narrator is Hannah, who's a very different character, um, much more ordinary in a way, much more middle class, much more self-doubting. April is the woman who ends up murdered. Um, and so it was really important to me to give her um, as much of a voice as possible in the manuscript. Um, and that's really why I gave her the title, because I wanted her to be, you know, super present in the book. Um, I love golden age crime fiction. I've talked a lot about the amount of inspiration I get from them. Um, I think people can probably see some golden age influences in this book. But if I had a bone to pick with golden age fiction, it's probably the fact that the victims can sometimes feel a little bit disposable, you know, someone to just be bumped off in order to set the mystery going. And I very much did not want that to be the case for the It Girl. Um, So April is, I hope, a real three-dimensional present character throughout the narrative. And she's described as an It Girl by one character in passing almost. Um, And it's meant as a kind of derogatory thing, I think. But Hannah doesn't really take it that way. She overhears the remark and she thinks, yes, you know, April is an it girl because whatever quality she has, she she has it, that kind of indefinable quality that makes her fascinating to watch, hard to tear your eyes away from. She's a person, and I I wrote her this way very deliberately, she's a person who's hard to categorise. You know, she's someone who's highly intelligent, but pretends not to be uh, is happy for people to assume that she got into Oxford on the back of her dad's money she's someone who's incredibly generous but she can also be extremely cruel she can be irresponsible with other people's feelings and their happiness and their futures 
but she's also someone who's had a really difficult upbringing. Um, she's funny. Um, she's a great best friend to Hannah, but she's also deliberately very hard to categorise in a certain way. There are certain types of people that we gravitate to and become obsessed by. Um, and April very much exemplifies many of those qualities. And in fact, that's something that happens in the book, that the press becomes obsessed with her case. Um, and consequently, my narrator Hannah's life uh, becomes a misery because she's hounded as the only person who knows what really went on. The It Girl is actually set in two geographical places, but also in two different points in time. Oxford is in the past, before the death of April, and then in London in the present. But there's also this underlying transition of the central characters from being, I guess, teenagers into adulthood. And it's no more pronounced than in the main character, Hannah, who, as you said, is the narrator. She's a real contrast to April. Hannah believes Oxford offers her the opportunity to reinvent herself. Now, April Clark Clarkton knows who she is, but Hannah is suffering from what she thinks is imposter syndrome. Who does Hannah want to be? Hannah, like most people that age, you know, she's 18 when she goes away to university, is really discovering who she is. Um, and that's probably true of April as well. It's just that from Hannah's perspective, April looks like she has it all. She looks incredibly confident, but that's partly because that's the image that April chooses to project. She looks, I think, more confident and more capable than she than she perhaps really is inside. But yeah, it's definitely a book that deals in binaries and contrasts. As you say, the narrative is split into two sections. There's the before section and the after section. And the fissure between the two is April's death, which has defined who Hannah becomes in the present day sections. And in many ways, has defined the person that she's grown into. Um, but yeah, Hannah is, um, she's, I wouldn't necessarily say she's at the other end of the spectrum from um, April because she's not you know there's there's one point where someone in the novel refers to her as having a working class background and she's kind of like well actually like you know I'm from a middle class background and I don't feel comfortable claiming that as you know as if I've sort of pulled my way up for, against great adversity she's a regular person and you know like many of us she's um she does feel a sense of imposter syndrome when she goes to Oxford She's bright, she's intelligent, she knows she got the marks and she belongs there, but she walks through the Porter's Gate, which becomes an important plot point of Pelham College on the first day. She is astonished that she's allowed to walk in here as a student. Um, and that is something that she very much does not have in common with April. I think April is much more of the type of person who would be astonished if a door was not open to her and feels that, you know, in fact, she should be allowed to go anywhere and do anything that she likes in life. One of the things that the book is exploring is friendship and the way, um, although April is very much not a perfect friend to Hannah, they are drawn to each other and, I think often in friendship, the, the qualities that we find most alluring in other people are the qualities that we ourselves do not have, but wish that we did. And Hannah admires April's courage and her insouciance and her ability to grab life by the throat and take what she wants out of it. And April, although you don't see the action from her point of view, I think admires Hannah's loyalty and her kindness and her generosity and her willingness to 
you know, answer up to stuff and to go the extra mile for her friends. And that is what draws them together. It's the fact that they are not similar, but that they each have qualities that the other lacks and admires. Hannah's life is complicated by the death of John Neville, who was convicted of the murder of April Cliveden. And that stirs up a lot in Hannah's past. Hannah's relationship with John Neville is more than a little coloured by some uncomfortable interactions she had with him in her days at Oxford. Where does John Neville fit into Hannah's life as a young student at Oxford? John Neville is um, the man who is eventually on, on Hannah's evidence convicted of April's murder. And Hannah first encounters him when she goes into the Porter's Lodge at Oxford. Um, for anybody who hasn't visited an Oxford college, the layout is pretty unique. Um, so usually they're because they're medieval structures, uh, they're normally walled uh, with very high walls all the way around, 20 um, 40 feet in some cases, buildings all the way around the outside. And there's very often only one entrance, or sometimes there are side entrances, but they're usually locked up at, uh, after dark. So for most purposes, your main way in and out is going to be through this huge medieval door, um, which is overlooked by the Porter's Lodge, who act as a sort of combination security force, administrative kind of concierge type role. They look after the post, they hold parcels, they keep an eye on who's coming in and out. So the porters are in this sort of slightly unique position in Oxford colleges in that they're not students, they're not a member of the academic staff, but they have quite a lot of power and quite a lot of responsibility. Hannah encounters John Neville on her first day when she goes in to um, ask for the keys and try to leave a message for her mum. And they have this sort of slightly uncomfortable power play interaction that Hannah isn't quite sure how to interpret, where John Neville is sort of pretending to give her the keys to her flat and then withholding them and then pretending again. And, and it makes her feel uncomfortable in some way that she can't quite define. She refers to it as a constant disquieting presence. It's very unnerving just in itself, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And that sort of sets the pattern for their interactions over the next year. And Hannah becomes more and more uncomfortable around John Neville. She finds him difficult to deal with. He's socially very awkward. He doesn't pick up on her cues that she wants him to leave her alone um, they have a couple of misunderstandings a couple of fairly unpleasant interactions where he mistakes her for an intruder all of this conspires to make Hannah very uncomfortable around him and very ready to jump to suspicions regarding his motivations and actions They made a mistake. The words are ringing in Hannah's ears as she shoves a tenor down on the table and shoulders her way blindly out of the cafe. Outside, she leans with her back against the wall, feeling the drizzle on her face, her breath coming quick. They made a mistake. In spite of the police and the forensic experts and the judge and the jury and everyone else involved in convicting John Neville of April's murder, there is only one person that they really applies to Hannah because it was her evidence that sent John Neville down 
She was the one who first told the police and then the courts about his behaviour. It was her name on the harassment complaint submitted to the Pelham College authorities, a complaint they brushed under the rug, later issuing fulsome apologies to both Hannah and April's family for their dismissive attitude. And it was she, Hannah, who saw John Neville that night, hurrying towards her out of the gloom, head down, away from Staircase 7. So let's jump forward in time. Enter the reporter Garrett Williams, a reporter who thinks Neville is innocent. They made a mistake, he says. What does Garrett know and how does that impact Hannah? John Neville has died after 10 years in prison, still protesting his innocence. And on the face of it, this should be good news for Hannah. You know, it should free her up to look forward to this new chapter in her life. She's expecting a baby with her college sweetheart. And actually what it does is force her to admit the fact that she has never been completely happy with Neville's conviction. There's questions she's not been able to answer. There's things she's not been able to figure out. Um, and this young reporter, Garant, comes into the shop where she works. In, uh, she works in a bookshop and crystallises those questions by asking some of them to her directly. Hannah's first instinct is to kind of push him away. And then she realises that she needs to address this. She needs to find out some of the information that he has. He claims to have contact with an old friend of hers. And so she agrees to meet him ostensibly to put his questions to rest, but actually, I think, really to put hers. Um, and Garine gives her information about April and about her friends in the lead up to April's death, which forces her to reappraise the whole situation it's a slight spoiler to say what that is but um yeah it basically means that Hannah has to rethink some of the assumptions she made about the case she has to accept that there may be more suspects than she ever really considered that other people may have had an agenda to want April to be killed and it basically she leaves the meeting with more questions than she had before which is not the way she hoped it would go <laughs> there's another theme which runs through not just this book, but your other books, and that's isolation. It seems to be a very strong theme comes through in your books. One by one, your characters are snowed in at a luxurious ski chalet. In a dark, dark wood, there's a hen's party in the middle of nowhere. And in The Woman in Cabin 10, your story, of course, takes place on a cruise ship. I can't imagine anything more isolated than that. Sounds terrible, but anyway. <laughs> Even in The It Girl... Hannah's guilt has somehow isolated her from just about everybody and everything around her. Do I detect a bit of a thread here? What makes isolation the, such a strong basis for psychological thrillers for you? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I guess part of it is just I love writing locked room thrillers. Uh, having a small cast of characters enables you to do a much deeper dive into them um, and it also enables you to play with suspects, um, you know, as other, some people are ruled out, other people are kind of forcibly ruled in just because you have a limited cast of suspects. But I think also the truth is actually my real fears and phobias are not isolation. It, it, often these, often my books are set in isolated locations um, or in the case of Pelham College, it's a location which is um, necessarily fairly claustrophobic because, you know, Oxford colleges are small 
And there is that realisation that if you hook up with someone in your first term, you are going to be eating breakfast, lunch and dinner and very possibly studying and socialising alongside them for the next three years, which is an uncomfortable realisation. But that is the crux of it, that my locations are isolated but the people there are not alone and I think for me that is the true horror it's not not being stuck somewhere alone that I could be quite happy with but being stuck somewhere with unpleasant people who I do not wish to be with and that's very much the case for um, one by one and also the woman in cabin 10 the theme of that is very much someone who is stuck in a place they can't get away from with a group of people they would much rather not be with the it girl is a bit different in that respect because Hannah is happy to be at Pelham. She loves her friends. She's having a whale of a time. But certainly in the second half of the book, she has been very isolated by her experiences. She's also been bound to this group of friends because they are the only people who really understand what she's been through. And she is stuck with the realisation that probably one of them is implicated in in April's murder so it's not so much that she doesn't want to be with them it's more that she doesn't want any of them to be in this situation she doesn't want to be forced to suspect her old friends and pass around guilt like a sort of cursed pass the parcel that the last person whose lap it ends up in is going to be the person who did it <laughs> now my last question to you is about all of your books and it's unusual because all of your books are standalone psychological thrillers they're uh, there's not one that's connected to the other. Certainly, there's not a sequence or a series. What motivates you? What drives you to create new characters in new situations every time? That is a question that I ask myself every single time I start a new book. And I sit there staring at the blank page and I think how much easier it would be if I only had you know, a nice set of familiar characters that I could return to in a setting that I'd already invented. And and the fact that I have sort of set myself this task of reinventing the wheel each time um, starts, starts to feel more and more insane. I was recently asked to contribute a story to um, Marple, which is a new anthology of Miss Marple stories commissioned by the Agatha Christie estate. I said yes, um, largely because I love Miss Marple and I love Ag Agatha Christie. But when I sat down to write the story, of course, the absolute joy of having a really familiar character who I could imagine how she would react in any given situation in a world that someone had spent years creating and making real was such a relief. I can't even tell you. It was the most uh, fantastic experience. But no, I have not written a series novel yet. Um, I haven't written a sequel to any of my novels, although I do sometimes wonder how some of the characters are getting on. I could imagine returning to some of them. But I think the issue is that I tend to write about ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. And the problem is that you can have one extraordinary thing happen to an ordinary person in the course of their life, but to have extraordinary things keep happening to them becomes harder and harder to pull off. And, you know, we're no longer in the age of the gentleman detective. You can't have Hercule Poirot or Lord Peter Whimsey marching up to crime scenes and sort of, you know, poking around with, what, oh, my good man, mind if I, you know, destroy this forensic evidence? <laughs> like that, that stage is gone. You need to be a police professional or have some professional involvement with crime in order to be allowed to investigate in any kind of official capacity. And for that reason, it's become very difficult to find plausible ways to 
get regular everyday people repeatedly involved in crimes. So until I make my peace with writing a police character or, you know, a lawyer or something, um, or until I come up with some other way for my regular everyday people to be involved in homicide over and over again, I think I'm stuck with writing standalones, unfortunately. Ruth Ware, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. I've been talking to Ruth Ware about her latest book, The It Girl. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.